Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Just as we start out, I want to say a special thanks to Jason Stark and Taylor Terzak for producing OnScript. They do a lot behind the scenes, and uh, we wouldn't be able to do this without them. So thanks so much to both of them. Also, a quick heads up that there's some swearing in this episode. We don't; It's not our sort of normal practice, but uh, there is a bit in this one. And so I just wanted to mention that uh, in case you wanted to be aware. All right. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the episode. Hello, friends. Welcome to OnScript. This is Amy Brown-Hughes, a co-host for the podcast with Matt Lynch, Matt Bates, Aaron Heim, Drew Johnson, Chris Tilling, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Aaron Rafferty, cultural anthropologist, Presbyterian pastor, and ethnographic researcher who has studied foster families in China, Christian congregations in the United States, and people with disabilities around the world. Aaron teaches and researches at Princeton Theological Seminary, Princeton University, and the Center of Theological Inquiry. Aaron is the author of two books, Families We Need, Disability, Abandonment, and Foster Care's Resistance in Contemporary China with Rutgers in 2022. And she had a busy year because the book we'll be talking about today came out last year as well, From Inclusion to Justice, Disability, Ministry, and Congregational Leadership with Baylor University Press. This book is wonderful for many reasons. I appreciated the clear laying out of the big problem with something that many of us might not realize is a problem. Aaron's transparency as a researcher, the thoughtful and theological engagement with scripture, the clear ramifications for ministry practice, and most of all, I'm deeply appreciative to all of the people who participated in this study, especially those of disabled people who helped me see worship and ministry in a whole new way. I'm excited for our listeners to hear you talk about this book. Welcome, Erin. Thanks so much for having me. So could you start us off today by telling us a bit about your journey into that space in which ethnography and practical theology meet? Is there a moment or two that stands out as particularly formative for you? Yeah, so I think it's just kind of, <laughs> it ends up taking us like further into my biography than I might normally go, but that's okay. Um yeah, so I studied anthropology in undergrad. I've always been fascinated by different languages and cultures, but I got a scholarship to go to seminary. So I went to seminary. <laughs> and then I got to seminary and I was looking around and I was like, yeah, this scripture stuff is interesting, history, you know, all of the kind of fields that they value, but where's the culture? <laughs> like I had thought seminary was going to be this great cultural education because I had this kind of international picture of the church. Like I had already traveled to lots of different places and that's kind of where I fell in love with what God is doing, what God is doing in the world. So I figured those were important tools for future ministers to have. So I started taking classes across the street at Princeton University. Um, so that's across the street from Princeton Seminary in anthropology again. And then ended up going straight into doing PhD in anthropology after I graduated with my master's of divinity. And then I probably should have chosen a dissertation topic that allowed me to study the church, 
But I just was young and following whatever interest I had. (laughs) So I ended up studying, you mentioned my other book, I ended up studying foster families um, in China and kind of the role that they play in the international adoption trade, um, which is a very important substantive role, but is very um, unknown. So uh, I've kind of always been drawn to people who are on the margins and being able to amplify their stories. But when I got back from that um, experience doing field work, I started teaching at the seminary and I um, have always believed that God would kind of grow my vocation together. I was just like trusting God to do this work. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just, you know, following. Um, And I started, yeah, teaching at at the seminary and using ethnographic methods to study Christian congregations. So that's kind of what I've been up to over the last couple of years. I mean, sometimes I even call myself a practical theologian. My colleagues always encourage me to do so. I don't necessarily like to go that far. I feel like I'm truly um, a researcher at heart. I'm very curious. I love to listen. And you see me doing a lot of that in this book. You know, I also really feel that ethnography is such an incredible tool for discernment. Um, you know, we like a lot of the process that remains hidden is we spend all this time analyzing the data and we don't necessarily show people all of the work that goes into that. But I have had the incredible privilege over the last couple of years of um, teaching divinity students how to do this type of research. And that is the excitement, right? When you get to have these conversations about, you know, not just who is God, but like, where does we see God working on the ground? Um, and so, yeah, this has just been a really cool journey for me. That's really cool. You know, I as I, I read your book and, and such, you know, thinking about because you is this book is a lot of things, including practical theology. And, uh, you know, I'm as a historical theologian, I'm also in that sort of weird space where I use historical methodology <laughs> for theological. And so it's interesting Um Kind of seeing those integrations between disciplines and how uh, how we even some of those reflexes with how we understand theology, what it is and what it isn't, because I would say that uh, your book is more useful to me than <laughs> some books that are straight theology in that sort of sense might be, um, especially in thinking about how we live faith individually and together. Mm-hmm. So let's turn to your book, From Inclusion to Justice, Disability, Ministry, and Congregational Leadership. What prompted you to write this book? Well, there are a couple things. Um, One was I, I mentioned this, I just keep getting, I kept getting requests for like, what should I read? You know, if I'm trying to do ministry with people with disabilities, and I would sort of send people like this weird packet of like, here's one John Swinton article and like here's this like pamphlet that Eric Carter made because I I didn't really have in mind a particular book. And so then as I was writing this particular book, I think it's important to note I was writing it to the field of practical theology because I want them to use ethnographic methods to better understand people and the church. Um, And I want them to care about disability ministry and not just doing ministry with disabled people, but the incredible ministry and leadership that disabled people have to give to the church. So those were things uh, that were going on. But I also wanted people in the pews to have something that they could read and be excited about and that they could really like get in touch with folks with disabilities on the page in terms of what uh, was going on in in churches today. So I had to spend a lot of time with uh, churches in order to do that work. 
But a couple other things I was thinking about is I didn't notice that the field of practical theology was using the word ableism all that much. And I felt that that was a big oversight. (laughs) Um, I was seeing how important it was for me because I'm a parent of a disabled child um, and a pastor, I was seeing how important it was for me to grapple with my own ableism as a person who at that time, and if you read the book, I'm on kind of a journey with my own disability identity. But at that time, I was identifying as temporarily able-bodied. So if I wanted to really understand um, disabled people better, that was a big obstacle to my relationship. So I thought that I could do that work of writing as an able-bodied person to able-bodied churches. I know churches don't like that terminology, but the fact is most of our churches are led by people, yeah, who are not disabled. (laughs) Um, And so I felt that maybe I could say some things in that identity that my disabled siblings in Christ couldn't say, or when they say, they have been like ridiculed so much and it's been so painful for them. And I was like, I'll show up and do that because I need to talk about my own ableism, too, if I'm going to do this well. And then I guess the final thing was kind of a theological concern. I was looking at the um, field of practical theology and all the stuff out there on disability ministry, and so much of it is very, very good. And yet I felt that it really kind of stopped short. Like, there's a lot of stuff about the Imago Dei and the belovedness of all people, and therefore disabled people should be fully included in all of this work. But I was noticing, like, we haven't gotten that far (laughs) in that work, and we haven't moved that far beyond that Imago Dei. And, like, we know that Jesus calls people into ministry and, like, the Spirit (laughs) transforms them in leadership. And I'm like, and I'm seeing all of of that. I'm seeing my disabled siblings in Christ do that, and I'm still seeing obstacles. So there was also kind of, as there always is at the heart of any ethnographic project, like a fundamental question of kind of, like, What's going on here? <laughs> um, and that's where kind of the the research came in. I love that question. What's going on here? I, you know, because it puts us in such a space of of observing, of receiving, and you know, that's part of ethnography, right? And and I deeply appreciated your transparency regarding the ethnographic method. I think there's a lot of ways the methods that researchers and all of us use in the academic space, but we don't always show our cards as it were, or like lift up the hood and show us what's happening in between the things. So like, you you know, you talked about what worked, what didn't work, what changed. And most revealingly, as you just kind of alluded to where ableism showed up. So would you share maybe a little bit more detail about your approach to the study? Um, kind of structure of it and and such, and perhaps give an example or two that prompted reflection or reevaluation. Yeah, I mean, there were so many twists and turns, and I think it's really important as researchers to show our work, and not just because of ethics, <laughs> but because people coming behind us who are going to build on that work, you know, how can they build on it, right, if they can't see what really took place? So, Um, I did research with 11 different congregations in the New York, New Jersey, and Philadelphia area, and I worked with a research team of five students. And I mean, one of the things that kind of happened uh, from the outset is we found all these churches that were doing ministry with disabled people, and we started um, doing participant observation with them. And so that's a really kind of loose method of simply entering into their context on their terms and trying to participate and observe in what they already have going on. 
I had this grant from the Louisville Institute, which is wonderful to have funding. And I told them, you know, I'm going to do a study of uh, pastoral care. You know, I want to really focus on how we support disabled people in our churches or maybe how we're not doing that so well. Well, I mean, very quickly, it was like if I'm going to, again, do research with churches on their own terms, their ministry disability ministry is not limited to pastoral care. It was in all sorts of other parts of the church. So that kind of got blown up, you know. We're going to participate and observe in a real variety of different ministries here. So, you know, sometimes it was education programs. Sometimes it was, you know, uh, preaching or worship or, you know, there were actual caregiving ministries. But there's also a presumption if you do that study, right? It's like, oh, you know, disabled people need the pastoral care. And, you know, so the great thing about our study is like we showed up to these churches and we saw the incredible ministry that God is already doing through disabled ministers and leaders. And then that kind of also really pushed, I think, from a practical theology standpoint, um, what we should or shouldn't be doing. And we saw our work as needing to amplify those ministries and amplify those voices. And then I talk a lot in the book about how, I think it's like in the second chapter, that our our research team, we were trying to do everything by the book. I really do care about ethics, right? So we had all these, you know, forms and we ask people, we, we tell them, you know, we're going to do things anonymously, you know, your name isn't going to be shared, all this stuff. And we were getting further into the project, and we were realizing if we do it this way, if we don't include the names of these churches, if we don't include the names of the disabled leaders, like, people can't find them, and they can't learn from them, and we're not creating a network. And in fact, like, we're kind of being obstacles (laughs) in their ministry. And also, we're using this paradigm of how you do good research from, like, an institutional review board, you know, standpoint Um, That really doesn't necessarily work that well in a world in which disabled perspectives like voices have been marginalized. So it was really disabled people we started to realize, like, had been saying all along, like, no, but you can use my name. Like, you know, I'm I'm happy to be named. In fact, I'd like to be named. And we were like, oh, my gosh. (laughs) And, you know, felt so foolish because... The, like, primary text that, like, this book is oriented around is this narrative where Jesus really calls Bartimaeus, like, into ministry and calls Bartimaeus by name. And I mean, I just feel so, like, wonderfully foolish (laughs) about, you know, not getting it, right? That, like, you know, you look through all of these gospel narratives and these disabled people aren't named and it's really harmful, And yet here's the one where Bartimaeus is called by name and he's so important to the story, not simply because, you know, he's called by name, but because he literally is called into ministry. And that's what we want to talk about in the book. And oh, my gosh, if we don't name people, (laughs) we, you know, are actually participating in ableism, I think. Like, and, you know, we're doing it in a very kind of able-bodied, ableist way. So, yeah, that happened throughout the study. And I try to tell the story as honestly, as as possible. Um, and a lot of that, too, like I said, you know, comes from my own experience of my daughter is such a good teacher when it comes to me having to reckon with my own ableism. But there were so many folks along the way who were good teachers to our research team. And I'm so grateful for that. I, I'm glad you used that example about the naming, because that that's actually the one of the ones I had in mind. <laughs> uh, that was just such this moment of, of course, it, like where this 
sort of institutional best practice yeah. piece, which is put in place, presumably to protect participants and to protect the study and lots of and in important ethical kinds of ways. But in this case, it was actually a silencing problem. Yeah. Um, and I and it was so cool for to kind of see how um, your research kind of worked through that. Yeah, that was that was just really wonderful. And we've been talking about ableism a little bit. So you talk about this in your introduction as the primary challenge for church and ministry with disabled people. So would you define ableism? Like, let's just start with a definition and give us a sense of the landscape of church and disability in the recent years. Yeah. So ableism is really um, noticing. I mean, there's so many definitions of ableism. And I would say like Talila Lewis has one that's really intersectional and that um, is constantly updated <laughs> to kind of make sense of the complexity, because the definition that I'm going to give is a little bit more pared down. You kind of can't understand ableism fully. Um Lewis argues, and and lots of people argue, and I agree, without it understanding its intersections to things like capitalism and sexism. But um, generally, the idea that like the able-bodied experience, so the non-disabled experience, forms the default for how we the way we do things, um, kind of in the same way, like you know, in language where we used to just use like he, and that was like a good placeholder for everyone, but like it wasn't really right. So it's the idea that like you know, the able-bodied experience is the norm, right? And then disabled people kind of have to, like, figure out a way through this world that is not only not built for them, but then also socially discriminates against them. So when we talk about ableism, we kind of start with something called the social model of disability, and we talk about the idea that disability is really socially constructed, that a lot of disabled people wouldn't experience the barriers that they do if it weren't for the prejudice that is pervasive in our society. So that's really what I want to kind of like draw church's attention to in the book and maybe kind of reorient their thinking because a lot of us have grown up thinking that disability is something that is in someone else's body, right? And not ours if we don't have a disability. And then it's kind of like their problem. <laughs> and so if the church sort of treats disabled people or disability as a problem, that really doesn't feel like the ministry that Jesus is calling us to. That's a real problem. Well, that's part of ableism. And yeah, I, I think that, you know, what I was noticing as I was doing this study is that churches were kind of wringing their hands and trying to do um, right by disabled people. But for some reason, the things that they were doing weren't working. And so what I had seen, of course, as I talked about in my research as an obstacle in my own research, <laughs> let alone kind of ministry, is ableism. And kind of coming to terms with that seemed really important. And I thought, okay, can we talk about that a little bit more openly and honestly in the church, um, especially can able-bodied people talk about that and reckon with that? I mean, we've just been through like this whole experience of white folks, right, Recon reckoning with their white supremacy. And so, you know, these things are intertwined, but there's a similar kind of invitation here in the book for churches to, to do this work. So let's dig in a little bit more. Um, the term inclusion is used in a lot of spaces to indicate intentionality, to address a lack of belonging or an inequity, or to increase participation. So we're all familiar at least to some extent, with that language or goal. Um, and generally think it's a 
good thing in general for people to be included. Um, so your first two chapters take on the limits and problems with inclusion. I love it. You, you go right for it. And so would you outline for us why inclusion as metric or goal is not only insufficient, but is actually deeply problematic? Yeah. And I mean, of course, this is meant to be a bit provocative. I always kind of say if what I start talking about when I'm talking about inclusion, like sounds nothing like your church, then just ignore me, you know. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I was noticing, because we were doing research with churches that self-selected into this study. So they were like, you know, either we're doing disability ministry and you know, we want to kind of connect with other people. We want to show what's going well, or we're doing disability mystery and it's like not going well, but, you know, we want to be in the study. But then the weird thing was like those churches, whether they felt it was going well or they felt it was going poorly, like both thought it was like really, really hard. <laughs> and so, you know, as a researcher, I'm kind of like, well, what's the issue here? And then they were all talking about inclusion and they were all talking about inclusion as the presumed goal of ministry. Like, oh, you know, well, we just need to better include disabled people or, you know, we need to make sure that everyone is together, right, in our spaces, that nobody, you know, is isolated, like people need more support, right, better services, these types of things. Just basically like if we just included people more or people felt more included, we would be good. <laughs> so as I was kind of trying to figure out what was going on there, I noticed that in these circumstances in which, say, like an able-bodied church goes to include disabled people, what happens there is the power dynamic doesn't change. So the able-bodied people who hold all the power, if they include the disabled people, like the disabled people might get to participate, but they weren't moving to being ministers, being leaders, actually having control over the programs. And, you know, one of the ways, again, that I learned this was the hard way. Like I was in ministry, pastoral ministry at the time that I was writing the book, and we had a lot of disabled people in our congregation, which was so exciting. And we realized, hey, we have a session that's like a church council, right? It's the leadership body of the church. And we don't have a single disabled person on that leadership council. And so while I was a pastor there, we we made sure that there was a disabled person in leadership, but we didn't give her any tools um, to really know what she was doing. We basically just like pigeonholed her into the existing structure. And it was one disabled person on a council with like all these other non-disabled people and like she didn't really say much and it didn't really change anything and it didn't really work. And so it got us to feel like, hey, we're doing it, but nothing, but it didn't like transform the power dynamics or, you know, our church. Like, So one of the things that, you know, I argue in the book is that like inclusion actually kind of like it preserves the status quo. It kind of even like keeps ableism, like it like feeds ableism because if able-bodied people are, like, including disabled people, like, they feel good, right? And, like, sometimes disabled people, like, feel okay, but disabled people, like, never make their way kind of into ministry and leadership as, like, we're all called to be as, as disciples of Christ. So I was really concerned about this. And then, you know, I tried to beat up on inclusion in the book as opposed to beating up on the church. I love the church. And one of the things that I think is happening is— I think this is the model that we have from society. Like if you look at, and I've learned a ton from disability justice advocates and they like really 
build on the disability rights movement, but they say like it hasn't done enough. And this is the problem is sort of like our model for rights is pretty inclusion based. Like it's kind of structured all around these accommodations. Like let's not change how we actually do things. Let's just make accommodations for disabled people, which doesn't move them to the center, right? It keeps them on the periphery. It makes them feel like everything they're getting is like a privilege or a handout, but it doesn't actually give them like a seat at the table. And so what, you know, disability, the disability justice movement does is says like, that's a really poor vision of justice, right? That's not even really a great, you know, vision for rights, but we can talk about that more later. But I mean, you know, I'm just so grateful that we have Jesus when we look toward a vision of justice, because Jesus is saying all these like radical things <laughs> in the Bible. And if we actually look to Jesus for a vision of something more like justice, I think we realize that inclusion is just not good enough. And then I also get a lot of excitement around, hey, we don't have to do things like the world does. And in our churches, what if we really could have that vision of, you know, the last will be first and the first shall be last? And if our power dynamics really resisted, like the power dynamics of the world. Awesome. I was like, you're, you're getting the preaching here and I love it. That <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hey, amen. <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt you, but <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I, um, I, as you just mentioned, the first shall be last and the last should be first. I, I was thinking about that. Um, that moment in Jesus's ministry where, you know, and he's talk he's at a table, right? And it's not just about someone pulling up a chair to the table. He's actually calling for a restructuring of how the table is even set, yes. which, of course, had a very sort of particular structure culturally at the time. And I think that a lot of times we don't have time, you know, for good reasons. We're tired. We're overworked. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that we don't have imagination kind mm -hmm. of to see the consequences the ramifications of changing things around um but i i think that what you offer in this book is some spaces where we can start maybe that have cultivating more of an imagination for justice that is based in what we see jesus doing so i mean you've already mentioned bartimaeus but and each chapter begins with a passage of scripture that centers your analysis and reflection so would you choose a couple of those passages um, that have been, you know, interpreted problematically or in a limited way or maybe haven't been included that you think are uh, really important? I, you know, might be hard to choose because you have some really, really good ones in there. Um, but I'm thinking about how starting the chapters the way you do with those reflections on Scripture, it had the effect on me of situating what you were uh, of the study and situating your commentary in um, kind of imagining how the church can look more like Jesus and their ministry. I'm really glad to hear that. I, I, it was, this sounds so bad, but I was like actually surprised how much scripture I was working with in this book. I mean, you know, because I was doing research with people. And so the primary object of study, and I should say subject of study when it's people, right, you know, wasn't scripture, but like centering disabled people and their stories like opened up scripture in a totally different way for me as well. So, yeah, one of those passages and, you know, you were talking about tables is the Luke 14, like banquet text, which has been kind of a rallying cry for inclusion because people will talk about the way in which Jesus is talking to the religious leaders and telling them this story about this man that's holding this banquet and he invites all his friends, but his friends are, like, too busy to come to his party. And so um, 
he goes out into, it says, the streets and the lanes and invites, it says, the poor, the blind, I'm quoting here, the crippled and the lame, because those are really not words we would use anymore. Um, but there's actually some interesting biblical stuff in the book about why those words, all this stuff. But anyway, basically go invite these people, right, to to the party and make them your guests. And people say, okay, yeah, so this is what we're supposed to do, right? This is a vision for inclusion. But I don't know, when you read like the entirety of that chapter, as I do in, in the book, you start to see things a little bit differently. I mean, for one, it's I thought the audience was really important when you think about that story and that it was the religious leaders at the time. And Jesus starts by like telling them, hey, when you go to the banquet, like don't sit in the seat of honor, right? Sit in the humble seat and then you'll be elevated. And then like tells this whole story, which I see as a cautionary tale around like, you know, this is how we keep doing it. <laughs> don't do it this way. But the other issue with the way that this story has been read is it's like traditionally read as an allegory. And so people will be like, oh, it's God's banquet. And like at God's banquet, like, you know, everyone's invited. And you're like, well, not really, though, because like in this story, disabled people are invited as an afterthought. And like, that's really, really crappy. And so like, I don't really, you know, if, if I'm a disabled person, like I don't want the crumbs and like, I don't want a God that's actually like quite ableist. And um, so I don't really think that is what Jesus is saying. And I just, you know, this is not a full interpretation right here, but in the chapter, I try to kind of read through the whole of this text. And what I see Jesus doing is like really speaking truth to power. And I see really like what you said, Jesus, like, shaking up banquet politics and kind of being like, you know, maybe we need to let go of the table, right? Those of us who kind of have this firm grip on the table. Um, and I think this is one of the issues when we think about disability ministry. I always say disability ministry should center disabled people. And people are like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, well, mm, but in your disability ministry, are disabled people like receiving or are they ministering and leading, right? Because that's what I mean by center disabled people. And so I think this is a really a story that really pushes that forward. Another story that comes, I think, just in the next chapter um, and all of these, by the way, in these chapters are stories that like barely mention disability. Like they're not like the healing narratives from the gospel. And there's a reason for that. Again, I wanted to center disability in the book, but I wanted to remind teachers and preachers that like every text <laughs> applies to the whole of the disabled experience. Cause it's kind of, again, like crappy <laughs> that when we think about disability, and we talk about like this canon of scripture where like you could have these texts, you know, <laughs> but it's like, no, this, you know, the disability experience applies to every experience. So another um, passage that I use is, you know, the story of of Mary and Martha and Jesus. And I talk about how what I really experienced in one of the churches I was working with was noticing how everybody who was trying to include this young person who was disabled in youth group, um, including like the parents and the pastors, everybody was working so, so hard. And so I saw the story differently, or I read the story differently when I noticed the invitation to sit at Jesus's feet. And I realized that, you know, one of the, I, we say this a lot in seminary that like God does the ministry, you know, but we don't actually, <laughs> I feel like act like that or believe that. And when it came to disability ministry, like, oh my gosh, these churches were working so hard. But in those moments, like the person who was disabled was really eclipsed, you know, from the whole conversation. 
And nobody was sitting at their feet, you know, let alone sitting at Jesus' feet. So I found this invitation like throughout the book to really sit at the feet of disabled people and to really listen before there would be all any changes, right, that were made in ministry and leadership. Because you can imagine if the problem is that able-bodied people have control of the table, have control of the church, really aren't receiving the gifts of ministry and leadership from disabled people, if they do not listen, right, and if disabled people um, and their stories and experiences don't come to the center, the problem will just repeat itself, right? So I was really trying to, yeah, push, I think, in thinking through both those stories, that invitation for able-bodied people to let go of the table or to, I don't know, sit at Jesus's feet. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, I when people read this, um, I found every single one of them, these examples, to be just really a little bit meditative at the beginning where sort of centering um, and but just kind of keep calling back to who do we think we are as the church and um, and to perhaps think about scriptures that especially people who are in ministry, we might read things a lot and need to kind of reframe some things that we have assumed. Mm -hmm. um, so I was really appreciative of the space that you gave for that. So your third and fourth chapters, uh, Listening Beyond Inclusion and Listening Beyond Rebuke, were especially powerful for me. So here you outline how to recognize when ministry is transactional and how often this ends up being about fixing or solving problems or people. <laughs> and it is so easy to do this, so easy. Um, even with the best of intentions, we try to fix what we shouldn't, so we speed ahead to a solution and we leave persons behind. So then you embark on an extended series of sections on listening and lament. And I'm going to ask a broad question about listening here, and then we'll come back to lament in a moment. So in ministry with disabled people, what does listening do and how does a person or community listen well? Yeah, I mean, I think that is a pretty contextual question. But generally, I think, you know, to go sort of toward the transactional ministry piece that you talked a little bit about, what I was noticing is that when people weren't listening to each other, so sometimes for me, it's like, I, helpful to kind of notice what's not working and like sort of work backwards. <laughs> and so when I could see people just like locked in these like conflicts, um, and honestly, I was felt that I was locked in one of these particular conflicts. Like I was like, felt like I was triangulated in the middle of it. It was really uncomfortable. I think what's happening is at some point, and we know this, like when you have an argument with someone you love, at some point, like nobody's listening <laughs> to each other. But one of the things that's going on is if we assume that inclusion is the solution, we're kind of always trying to pour more inclusion <laughs> on the problem. And it's, as I said, if inclusion is preserving ableism, it's definitely not making things better. And so what happens for disabled people, as you pointed out, is they feel themselves becoming problems that the church just wants to fix. They, like, I've literally heard people say things like, we have a young person with autism in our church that we have to deal with. And, you know, that's just such a horrible phrasing, right? That literally makes a person into a problem. But even one of the things that almost every disabled person is met with when they talk to their church about some accessibility issue, which is a response that's kind of something like, you know, I'm sorry, but we just don't have the money for that. Um, 
makes clear that this is a transaction that, you know, you're not a financial priority and therefore your problems are your problems. And I think we don't realize that we're communicating that way. So I think what I'm hoping people can do after reading this chapter is recognize when they're getting trapped in this transactional ministry in the container of inclusion and find their ways out of it. And so I'm suggesting that listening is a way out of it. I know it sounds really simple (laughs) to say sitting at the feet of Jesus or sitting at the feet of disabled people. But when you notice these kind of this way of, of doing transaction, when you see it's just like back and forth and back and forth and nothing's working, one of the things that I invite churches to do when someone comes to them and kind of says, this thing isn't working, is to simply say, like, tell me more about that. Or, you know, we want to understand that. Please tell me more about that. Or I'm so sorry that that's not working. Let's talk more about that. (laughs) And then, you know, a lot of people panic and say, but like, we truly can't do anything about it. We don't have any money. I'm like, well, don't say that. Just don't say that. Right. Just listen. (laughs) Because there really is an invitation to listen. Like I talk in the book about how, you know, again, disabled people are perceived as problems for showing you what's not working. That's a gift. Right. So if someone cares enough to come to you and say, this thing doesn't work for me. The subtext is, I want to be here. (laughs) And so often, you know, people in churches just hear like, you're mad, you're upset, whatever. But, you know, we have to find ways to connect, right? Despite these differences. So what would it look like? And so like, you know, what happens in that move is instead of having a gatekeeper, because this is the problem in transaction, is like if someone's coming to you and asking for stuff and then you're telling them yes or no, you're in charge. But if someone comes to you and maybe they're asking for stuff or maybe they're complaining or maybe they actually want to tell you something about how sad and lonely they are and you say, I want to hear it, that starts to kind of bring you alongside them, right? The power dynamic like shifts and change and changes and it doesn't fix everything. Like so many people read my book and they're like, you know, but I want to do something. I'm like, I know you do. Slow your roll. (laughs) Like, It really does start with like listening and relationship building and connection first. And especially for able-bodied people, like you can't go before disabled people. Are you kidding me? Like if anything, you get to walk alongside them. And I think a little bit behind them would probably work better. And so how are you going to do that? Well, at least, you know, pulling up a chair and listening to their experience and their story. Yeah, I, uh, I'm always struck by, and I think there's a, you attack this a little bit later in the book about maybe some of the presumptions that we have about how ministry is about doing stuff for people. (laughs) And listening is doing something. I, I think all of us have had the experience where we're going through something and we just want somebody to listen to us. <laughs> and that, and we see that as a loving, beautiful thing when somebody sits with us and doesn't have an agenda and, and receives what we have to say and, and looks us in the eye and, and eats with us and, you know, just sort of is shares that space with us. But on the, being on the receiving end of that, especially if you are, have a particular idea of what ministry is supposed to be, that you're the kind of the problem solver or the fixer or the one who manages the space to make sure that it is palatable or, you know, all these other things that we do, then um, we're sort of not actually doing the thing that we would want in that space. (laughs) 
And so let's go to lament. Um, do you have your book handy to, yeah. to read to read that passage? <laughs> so let's begin um, rereading a section for us. So it's on page one hundred three, and then afterwards I'll ask you a question. It's a, it's a, the paragraph that starts. This is the risky element. And read sure. through. And how long do you want me to read? By the way, just through the end of that paragraph. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. This is the risky element of lamenting with. Standing with disabled persons and families who are isolated, we may not totally understand what it is they are asking, let alone what they are feeling. We may not understand how God is implicated or what God is to do. But, quote, in refusing to accept things as they are, in protesting the conventional, stable, and safe forms of addressing God, the one who laments abandons the known world and any vestiges of order and refuge that it provides. And that's a quote from Ellington. This is the risk that we who are not weeping must assume in weeping with those who are weeping. We must be willing to trust God enough to compel God to be there in deep injustice and suffering and to forego this world and its injustice for something new. It is one thing for clergy and church leaders to know and hear about the isolation of disabled people and their families, but it's another thing for them to be willing to feel it. It is another thing for them to sit at the feet of disabled people and truly listen. If the church cannot be the place disabled people can openly express their hurts and frustrations, then the church cannot be a place for disabled people. Would you talk about what you learned about lament through the study and writing this book? Yeah. So one thing I like to be clear about when we talk about lament is I am talking about the laments that disabled people have about facing discrimination. I'm not talking about lamenting disability. I think disability is a wonderful incarnate human experience like other experiences. Um, it certainly is the case that some disabled people may lament experiences they have of their own disability, and that's for them to do. I'm definitely not asking able-bodied people to lament <laughs> disability, right, as a human experience. I just want to be clear about that. But what I am talking about is these laments that hopefully we all share where disabled people really struggle to access the church. And like I said, I think primarily that's because of ableism, the sin. I call it the sin of ableism. And I think that that is something that is worth lamenting. <laughs> and so disabled people, I feel like, are leading us in that work. And, you know, when I was writing this book, it was like, during the COVID pandemic, and I was on Twitter, and I was seeing disabled activists like crying out about the injustice that they were facing and experiencing because, you know, we were resorting to eugenics. Like we were saying, oh, if there's a certain number of respirators available, anybody with an underlying condition or a disability won't get one. And, you know, they know that the world isn't supposed to be that way. They know that that's wrong. So they're just screaming, right, and crying out about the injustice that they see. And I realized that, again, so often the church, and I think of the, the story of Bartimaeus, right? I think the church is kind of like the crowds being like, shh, like this is like, stop being so unruly. Like this is really uncomfortable. It's weird, whatever. And I thought, well, you know, I'm looking at this tradition of lament in the Bible and noticing that lament is actually like very public um, when it comes to, for instance, the Old Testament, like people weren't like crying out in a vacuum. I mean, they were on the Twitter of their days, right? They were in like the public square and there was a whole audience. 
And the point was, you know, for the hearers of Lament to be moved. So I found the work of of John Goldingay, who I think does a better job than I do, but like talking about how, how Lament works. And I found the work of Claude Westerman and all of these scholars who were saying, you know, you've, you've actually got at least three parties, right, in Lament. You've got the person who's lamenting, you've got the hearers of the Lament, and you've got God. And so I started to realize, wow, this is like far more complicated and also like far more powerful than I ever anticipated, because it's not just that, you know, as an able-bodied person, when you hear the laments of disabled people, that you enter into an understanding, that you start to feel their pain, that your heart maybe is like turned, right, by um, what they're saying. But it's also that they have the faith to like scream at God publicly is like kind of badass. I don't know if I can cuss on this uh, podcast. (laughs) And so I think there's something for us all to learn about um, our relationship with God, right? When disabled people, like I think it takes, what I'm saying is I think it takes great moral courage and faith to do this. And I think instead of giving people credit for that, what we're doing is saying like, you know, oh, your protest is kind of like messy and weird. And like, you know, um, and this is all about power, right? We're, you know, maintaining kind of the hold on the church as the gatekeepers. And instead, we have this like radical invitation to come alongside disabled people and to like amplify these laments before God. And if we really believe in God, God will listen, right? So I th- I felt incredibly challenged by this. I was like, you know what? And I was in the middle of the pandemic really struggling because my daughter has she's immunocompromised and, you know, we were feeling like we couldn't go anywhere safely. And I felt like I was crying out into a void. And so personally, this was so meaningful to me to be like, wait, you mean this isn't just like complaining? This is faith in action. (laughs) This like when you talked about before, like we feel like in listening, we're not doing anything. Same thing in lamenting. I feel like people are like, give me something to do. And I'm like, no, 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 this is something to do. Because if you truly believe that God is a God who hears, then the best thing you can do when you feel like something is really shitty is call God out. Because God wants that kind of engagement. And like God wants to seek justice, right? And like, why are we not consulting God? So I felt so moved, so inspired by the faith of disabled people and the courage to lament. And then I saw this reorientation that could happen where the church then is no longer gatekeeper, right? And in charge of transactions, but the church is like fellow faithful lamenter. Yes. Just yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, you know, and especially, you know, thinking about, um, I mean, there has been just some really great work on lament, but I think sometimes we might resist lament. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. It makes us, you mentioned feeling uncomfortable. You know, we might feel implicated, meaning we don't feel like we somehow our fault that we haven't done a good job or whatever. Um, Or also the implication of God. And and I feel like scripture, (laughs) I think God in scripture is pretty clear, like implicate me. Yeah, <laughs> like implicate me all over the place. Like just implicate me, um, and that God can handle that. Um, and I think a lot about um, a conversation I had with um, a Jewish colleague many years ago, um, who said, you know, basically, if I'm not yelling at God, what's my relationship? Um, yeah. And I, I really have learned a lot from that space of that. God not only can handle our anger, but invites us in our rawest form to speak truth to to God um, and for yeah. God to reflect that back to us. And in one space that um, 
for in, in my own tradition. So I know you're in the Presbyterian tradition. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in the Pentecostal charismatic tradition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so and I did my undergrad at Oral Roberts University. So yeah. yeah, so Oral and his son, who ran the school while I was there, used to say, and I quote, We are not a university that has a healing ministry. We are a healing ministry that has a university. And I know that's not how they view it now. <laughs> But it's a lot. Okay, so can we talk about healing for a bit? Um, I know that this is a deep source of wounding for many people, um, for people with disabilities and those who care for them, um, who have had hands laid on them forcibly um, in some cases, or who have to endure constant expressions of pity and questions about their faith, right? So I've been thinking about your chapter, Following Jesus into Justice. And maybe we can start there with Jesus. What do we do with a Jesus who heals? And do you see a role of healing in the ministry of the church? What might be a more faithful and loving approach? Yeah, I mean, spoiler alert, like I kind of lean towards justice, as the book title says. But and I I think that, you know, this book is is really not doing a lot of um biblical deconstructive work with healing. There are other books that do that much better than mine. I would recommend, for instance, Bethany McKinney Fox has a book called, um, I think it's like Healing and the Way of Jesus. And she she's really digging into these healing passages. But we have to talk about them because they have been so painful for so many disabled people. And for so many disabled people, they're the reason that they either like no longer attend the church or they haven't felt safe or comfortable. And, you know, in the the chapter where I'm talking about following Jesus towards justice, I'm trying to get us to pay attention to the larger arc of Jesus's ministry, which is like total transformation in the world. And I think um, Bethany McKinney Fox's work is was really helpful to me in helping me understand that Jesus, you know, as Messiah, did have these moments, right? And we might call it where he actually like cured people of some ailment that they had. But the larger implication of that curing was like social restoration, right, to the community. Because, you know, just as things are really messed up (laughs) in our world, things were really messed up in their world as well. And people like could hardly participate, right, in the, the life of the community. One of the things I always like to think about, though, is like, all of the people who weren't healed (laughs) and how it felt for them. And the fact that like, I don't think Jesus loved them any less. And I don't think Jesus ignored them. Like, I don't think that would be fair to say. Um, And I think that, you know, we kind of have like a little bit of a highlight reel here and then we take it. um, And especially if we, we as able-bodied people, we take it and assume well, this is like the good news, right? And this is what everybody wants. And I think that is a real misunderstanding of the cultural context and what's going on. And I also intentionally chose the Bartimaeus text to be at the heart of my book because there's a moment in that narrative where Jesus says, what is it you want me to do for you to Bartimaeus? So there's consent and Bartimaeus is an agent, um, in his own seeking out of having his sight returned. And I think that piece, obviously, where the disabled person has agency is something that is really important. And I see Jesus really lifting it up in that story. And so in general, I would say those are things that 
kind of like I try to keep in mind is that Jesus was trying to move us towards justice. That's a lot bigger vision, right, than these kind of, you know, incidents that we have that we tell of these miracles. I mean, they're incredible miracles, right? But they're not the whole vision for justice that Jesus has in mind. Um, And that also I think Jesus is very much wanting disabled people to be seen as people, right? Not as problems. And I think when we bring that, right, to any sort of what we would call healing ministry, when we're treating people as problems, that is not a dignifying orientation. (laughs) Um, And disabled people really know well what they want and need um, and can tell people. (laughs) And so um, I think when I see Jesus really like you know, uplifting the personhood and the agency and the ministry of disabled people. I see that part and parcel of the work of justice. And I think that's like one of the really important things to kind of have in mind. And then I guess the last thing I would say that I know I make clear in that chapter and I've said before is just when disabled people are at the center of disability ministry, I feel like, you know, in the same way that I feel like I I get excited about the ministry that 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 Jesus sees in, in Bartimaeus, I think that's exactly what Jesus means when he's thinking about justice. So if that's happening, right, in a healing moment with a disabled person, like far be it for me to say, you know, what God is doing. But I think there are lots of other ways that we see that happening. And so, you know, I would just be like super, super cautious, right, with all of those texts. And I would let disabled people read them and tell us about them, um, you know, rather than telling disabled people what they should think or feel or even receive from them. Yes, that's a good word. Thank you. Um, And good recommendation on kind of processing through, because in my tradition, this is a particular space that is wrapped up in what we think the gospel is, what we think is to come. And it can really be a very coercive space. Yeah. Um, And even violent where, you know, it's like, I think a lot about like, you know, like basically, I have a I have a good vision for your life. <laughs> and it's like, well, maybe that's not what Jesus has in store. Um, and mm-hmm. we seem to be able to receive other people's journeys in a way that some people's journeys don't get to be received um, for the way that they're structured. So let's take just a moment here and have some lighthearted speed round kind of questions. <laughs> so uh, real quick, just off the cuff, and then I'm just going to ask you like one or two questions after this. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Yeah put anything in it? Yes. Um, I'm embarrassed to say I put honey and oat milk in my coffee. That sounds so bougie and weird. Um, I don't think I'm bougie. I do think I'm weird. <laughs> I'll take it. Weird coffee. All right. If you got a day to hang out with any theologian, living or dead, and you can define theologian very broadly, who would it be? Oh, um, living or dead. Well, I, I kind of hung out with like theologians to write my book. <laughs> These people that I was reading, I was like, talk to me. So I had like, I just want to say I had like lovely conversations with Scott Ellington. I do feel like I would love to actually talk with John Golden Gay. He has some really lovely videos um, on um, YouTube <laughs> where you feel like you're talking with him. And then like, I feel like some of the mystics, like, I don't know, like Catherine of Siena. I just like, <laughs> I, I'm i like, I really don't get you, but I'm a super contemplative person. So I feel like that would be very interesting. And then, yeah, I mean, like also, I'm like, yeah, see, I'm choosing everybody. I'm like James <laughs> Cone. I, you know, 
I, I, I need to have like, speaking of the tables, like I need to have like a whole kind of, you know, nice meal with lots of people. So <laughs> nice. What place in the world have you never been but would love to visit? Africa. I mean, I've been to Egypt, but that's a very particular experience. So I'd like to travel a lot more in Africa. Any any space in particular? Well, I mean, I was looking at going to I have a colleague that teaches in Kenya and Rwanda. So those were like two places I was thinking about. And obviously, it's a huge continent. So um, but those are two places on my mind. What's your comfort movie or show? Oh, well, comfort show. I mean, definitely like Sex in the City. Although, I mean, it's so terrible. I, I watch it and I'm like, I don't like any of these people, but I kind of feel like I like came of age with them. So I am watching the reboot, but I really love anything that's like international thriller. And I just finished the fourth season of Jack Ryan. And the, I did too. <laughs> oh, okay. So it was actually good. I love the second spies. Two were horrible. The first one was good. The first season, and then I like the second two. I was like, did someone totally different direct these? I despise them. But the fourth one was okay. Like a little too violent for me. I'm always like looking away, and also kind of can't look away. But oh man, I love me some spies. Yeah, big, <laughs> me big too. Fan, big fan. <laughs> Are you a morning or a night person? Morning. Yes. What idea in theology? you think do you think needs to die well i mean we're gonna get here but i was like preview maybe christian leadership (laughs) (laughs) yes um what is the most recent work of fiction you've read that you couldn't put down oh i'm reading um the latest lisa c book so she writes these novels that are set in ancient china and i don't even remember what the most recent one that the name of it is but i love all of them so like anytime something comes out by her but it's long so i'm reading it very slowly i'm really kind of not a very great fiction reader it's on my list to like finish 10 fiction books this year because i'm always reading a million nonfiction books but i like don't make a lot of progress unless i kind of force myself to stop watching jack ryan (laughs) (laughs) what superpower do you wish you could have and why oh that's easy So my daughter is non-speaking and she uses a communication book to talk to me, which is great. And like we have a great relationship and I almost always can figure out what she's saying. But I wish I could understand. Like, I wish I could read minds. Like, I wish I could understand a little bit more of what she's saying. I mean, I think it's good. I think it's a good experience for me to have to struggle through because she certainly has to struggle through for communication. But I also feel like I get in enough fights with my husband that that would be another really helpful <laughs> superpower to be like, no, I just read your mind. And I know exactly what you're actually thinking because that's an issue too. I have an identical twin. And so I'm used to kind of like knowing really easily what someone else thinks. So I feel like it's it's also malpractice for me. So I, I would need that help. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. All right. So let's get to the juicy question here. Um, I saved this one for after the speed round and kind of as our last big question. So I was really here for your critique of Christian leadership. So I read <laughs> I read one John Maxwell book way back, uh, you know, about the 45 or 23 or eight or whatever it was, ways or habits of doing leadership, uh, because everyone was reading them and learning how to be, quote unquote, effective leaders in ministry at the time. Um, And I've had a bone to pick with this stuff for a long time. So at the time, I was just annoyed that all of these books assumed I was a dude. 
Like they all of them just assumed I was a dude that loved sports and had no role in taking care of a home or kids. <laughs> like, um, yeah. With all the leadership programs everywhere at schools and seminaries and churches and book after book about Christian leadership. And you note this, it's a industry worth billions of dollars. This approach has become fundamental to how ministers are trained and for what we think leadership should be and what a leader should look like and act like. Except that's part of the problem. <laughs> uh, the models that we use don't have much, if any, room for anyone who's marginalized and often ends up in pathologizing people in our congregations in order to be leaders of them effectively, mm. apparently. So obviously this chapter struck a chord with me. So here it is. Uh, I just, I'll just ask the question that you ask at the beginning of it um, and address. What is the disabled critique of Christian leadership? Yeah, so... I'm glad that you enjoy this chapter. Like some people hate this chapter. So I also I'm uh, I love conflict. <laughs> so I love when something is debatable. So I knew it would be a little bit um, contentious. But yeah, some of the things that I am concerned about, you know, from a disability studies and a disability theology perspective when it comes to Christian leadership, it, it is that pathologizing. And it actually is kind of jarring if you read through, you know, family systems theory stuff. And you see that the whole point is to not pathologize the identified patient, but the very, like, system itself, like, the whole metaphor is all about kind of, like, disease and anxiety. And then, you know, we are often talking about bodies or we're talking about the body of Christ and body parts. And, like, this is just... And then I talk about the metaphor of even getting up on the balcony and like how everyone can kind of agree that like, oh, that makes sense, you know, get some perspective, but like disabled people like can't get on the balcony. So like, and and I know that these are just, um, some of these are more metaphorical, but they're they're literally the metaphors that we are teaching to seminarians to try to get them to understand, like for instance, the get up on the balcony, right, is how to be like, distanced enough, you know, from the situation at hand. But I, I talk about the fact that I think even like that kind of differentiation is a privilege, right? That like, I mean, a lot of disabled people don't necessarily have that privilege. So I think the critique is is out there. Um, and one of the major concerns, and then I think, you know, sometimes it's like I have to sort of look at the ethnographic accounts to kind of work my way backward to, well, what do we do with this, you know, and and um, how do we kind of do things differently? And one of the things that I also feel like is going on in this Christian leadership literature is we're kind of build, we're building up an archetype, right? And we say we're not. We say we don't want Lone Rangers. But what we're not, I don't feel like what we're creating is a collaborative structure of leadership. And that's what I see come out of the disability justice movement. That's what I saw in churches where, you know, ministry was really flourishing for disabled leaders is that, you know, there were teams of people working together, um, relying on each other, uh, helping each other, not making the disabled person into the vulnerable person, but recognizing kind of that we all share vulnerabilities. There were networks of people as well. And like I talk about um, my friends, the Clark family, how their form of leadership, which is, I don't know what you call it. It's like a, I don't, I, I'm not, you know, I don't remember my biology enough, but it's like, it, it's like those sticky balls or something. It's like when somebody would be a, an advocate for their son 
they would just let that person, they would just carry that person with them. So they had this kind of, you know, bigger and bigger sticky ball of people who were mirrors. I talk about this mirrors and accomplices for their son, which was what he needed, which was so incredible. And sometimes that has to happen outside of the church. That's not necessarily happening inside of the church. Like those people literally don't exist. And then the church weirdly will kind of disparage those as like secular <laughs> things. So I think, you know, I, I talk a lot, obviously, about disabled people being at the center of ministry. And the way that I saw disabled people like making a contribution is like, and that's the only way I knew to critique you know, Christian leadership is that they're misfitting. So they, they don't fit into these models and molds. And I'm saying, I think that's a good thing. I think they start to kind of shake things up and expose where things like efficiency, productivity, right? That's like so ableist. Jesus is never talking about efficiency. or Like Jesus is so wildly inefficient <laughs> and also like, you know, only worked for a couple years. Like I just, I, I just... I, I think it's bizarre how, again, I think just these things look a lot more like the world. And, you know, because the world is so ableist and these norms, right, are so ingrained, then it takes us away, right, from who Christ is and, like, how do we kind of come closer to that? So I, I think this is really scratching the surface. Like, I don't think I have it all worked out, but I think it's a good invitation for other folks to keep working on it, especially for disabled um, scholars and leaders to keep working on it. I wanted to kind of point out some of those markers of like where things are more collaborative, where things are misfitting, where things are more networked. And, and I wanted to point out those movements. I talk about these in the book of of disabled people being mirrors for each other so that, you know, other disabled people can literally see themselves. Like that's something that if you don't have that in your church, like how do you expect disabled children to thrive? right? Like, you can't do that. <laughs> um, but then I also talk about this role of accomplice, right? Rather than just advocate, accomplices have skin in the game. So you can be an accomplice, but those folks are also going to do mirrors. So I'm kind of pointing to a couple ways. Well, I, I appreciate, you know, because this chapter really was, you know, you were pointing out some things. It was definitely scratching the surface. I mean, you mentioned efficiency. The other one I, the other one that occurred to me that I heard was part of a very large church kind of value system was excellence, um, that everything we do is going to be excellent. The brochures, the worship, the way we look on stage, all these different things, it's going to be excellent. And I just thought, where is Jesus excellent? <laughs> not, a, not a fruit of the Spirit, excellent. <laughs> no, it's really not. Not a one. <laughs> not really. Um, and, and I just really thought about how much pressure that is even that's on everyone, not just on people that don't fit, but what happens... When you get sick, what happens when you get overwhelmed? What happens when you make a mistake and mm -hmm. the machine just rolls right over you? Right. Yeah. Um. So I don't. I think part of the the fruit of your book as well is just to say like, you know, we are all actually harmed <laughs> uh, yes. by not participating in this space where we are doing ministry with one another in a collaborative way. And if we allow ourselves that sort of space of being implicated, that's a that's, that's a space of growth. Like, um, and in if we're a little too sort of brittle in that space, where where if that means I think that we're holding ministry and that the Holy Spirit's not, <laughs> because um, the Holy Spirit is advocate. And uh, I, I would question if if people are in the way or if they're too loud or if they're inconvenient. 
um, then it, you know, of course there's things that, you know, we need to figure out. Um, Mm -hmm. but at base. Yeah. I mean, it's like, isn't it a, it is a shame that our churches aren't filled with disabled leaders. Yeah. You know, it is our shame. And, and I, I talk about in the book, I mean, there are tons of disabled leaders in the world. So what the heck, (laughs) you know? So, so it's, it's that kind of, and again, I mean, I think that really is representation isn't everything, but that really is like the vision I see Jesus having for, for justice. So I am not, again, like I'm not saying it's plugging people into, it isn't, it isn't plugging people into existing positions. So, you know, one of kind of the invitations is like you, like I have talked about to to sit at the feet. And that really means kind of going out to those places in our societies where disabled people have been doing important radical work of advocacy, you know, for decades and learning from them, right? How to be um, not just more hospitable, but how to be advocates ourselves. And I just, I guess it's like, I think of my daughter too, I mean, I think it's so cool because I've been pastoring in churches where women are pastors. So she sees women who are pastors all the time. Like, I'm sure when, you know, you ask her who a pastor is, she just points at me or is like some other woman. <laughs> but, you know, she really doesn't get to see a lot of disabled um, ministers and leaders, right, who are adults. And like, this is another thing that should really concern us. I mean, it is wonderful that we may have um, a real heart for supporting disabled children but they grow up and they become adults and they have you know ministry that god wants them to do so then that really becomes you know the mission of the church is they're going to lead us right and we're going to to support and and follow them and i think when you hear these stories of well it just got too hard right, for this family to bring this disabled person to church or for this disabled person. It's like they just felt that, you know, they had said so many times, right, these are the things that aren't working and nothing changed. Um, Those stories really, really impact me. And I think that, you know, we we love to tell the feel-good stories, but um, sometimes when we hear these real, I mean, I just, when we hear these really challenging stories i think of like the way that jesus he had a challenging energy to him too (laughs) so i really hear the voice of the spirit in that and that is like you know those are my hopes for for the church what are you working on now well i just finished um a study of christians living with long COVID and chronic illness and yeah so we interviewed um about 20 christians um some of them who have been living with chronic illness for a long time, some who are newly diagnosed with long COVID. And then there's some overlap between those populations and just trying to, again, listen well so that we can understand um, how to better be, you know, in ministry and partnership with those folks. So I'm wrapping up that study and um, starting to write about it. And hopefully we'll have some stuff on my website that, you know, will be practical resources for churches. What's your website? It just AaronRafferty.com. Yeah, if go. you spell my last name correctly, you can find it. It's R-A-F-F-E-T-Y. There you go. <laughs> That's a chronic issue. 
<laughs> if people want to put an R in it at the end. Yes. Yep. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, what a delight it was to talk with you, Erin. I really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, thanks for having me. This is great. This is your host, Amy Hughes, with OnScript. We've been enjoying a conversation today with Aaron Rafferty, cultural anthropologist, Presbyterian pastor, and ethnographic researcher who teaches and researches at Princeton Theological Seminary, Princeton University, and the Center of Theological Inquiry. Aaron's book, From Inclusion to Justice, Disability, Ministry, and Congregational Leadership, is published by Baylor University Press. You can find links to the books on our website, onscript.study. Thank you for joining me today, friends. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate. 